There's a catchy song from the 80s called Authority Song by John Mellencamp. I found myself humming it recently. And here's an excerpt of the lyrics. I fight authority. Authority always wins. I call up my preacher. I say, give me strength for round five. He said, you don't need no strength. You need to grow up, son. I said, growing up leads to growing old and then to dying, and dying to me don't sound like all that much fun. And so I'll say I fight authority. Authority always wins. I've been doing it since I was young. Kid, I've come out grinning. Well, I fight authority. Authority always wins. I don't know why this song popped into my head. Maybe it's the growing struggle with my firstborn toddler. I recall last Sunday between the morning and evening services, I had to go pick up some food, and the plan was to take my son with me. Well, he started throwing a tantrum at home, and we finally made it outside. He began running around the yard in a circle over and over again. After reenacting the siege of Jericho, the thin walls of my patience came crashing down, so we headed back inside for some major scolding. Now, maybe I should tell him, authority always wins. <laughs> now, I can do better than that, and on a more serious note, if I don't speak into his life the truth about authority, somebody else will, the world will, the culture will, the school will. In our culture, there's much talk about how patriarchy, discipline, and submission are inherently bad. Bad examples like crooked cops, corrupt Congress, and crazy clergy are set forth as proofs of their reasoning. Now, God does not condone such evil, but he does not throw out the entire concept of authority either. He hasn't given up on it, even as Satan seeks to distort it. Whether it's the Garden of Eden or the Millennial Kingdom, past, present, or future. The devil questions and undermines authority, even the perfect and holy authority of God, the creator himself. To counter the voice of the enemy, we need to hear the voice of God. If we're going to understand authority properly, we need the word straight from the top. We'll get some help today as we continue in 2 Samuel. As I said last time, in 2 Samuel 21 to 24, we have something like an epilogue to wrap up the story of David and his kingdom. Content-wise, it captures the essence of David's character and leadership. Structure-wise, big chunks of these chapters are arranged in what's called a chiasm. This is when words or concepts are repeated in reverse order. Picture here a A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime pattern. As A and A prime, there's a pair of national crises. They're at the front portion of chapter 21 and at chapter 24, which we'll cover next week, Lord willing. Israel suffers from the mistakes of their king, once because of their former king Saul, and another instance because of their current king, David. But thankfully, David, a man of faith and action, directly addresses the problems. As a result, the God of Israel 
heeded the prayer for the land. B and B prime correspond to the second half of chapter 21 and the second half of chapter 23, respectively, which we'll cover today. Uh, You'll find in these verses the names and the great accomplishments of David's best warriors. And finally, we have C and C prime at the center of the chiasm, where there are two poems. Remember that Dr. Beal preached on the first lengthier poem corresponding to C, 2 Samuel 22, earlier this month on November 5th. So you can find that sermon on our website in the archives under the title, How Great Is Your God? Today we'll look at the second shorter poem corresponding to C prime in chapter 23, 1 to 7. So it makes sense to me to read 2 Samuel chapter 23 in two parts. First, verses 1 to 7. Turn with me there. 2 Samuel 23. We'll start with verses 1 to 7. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, And his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. I see here the simple lesson that true authority is granted by God's grace. True authority is granted by God's grace. So a quick note on the internal structure of verses uh, 1 to 7. Uh, We observe a few layers, I'll call them. First layer, the narrator introduces David in verse 1. Second layer, David introduces the Lord in verses 2 and the first half of verse 3. Third layer, there's the content of God's word in citation in the second half of verse 3 to verse 4. Fourth layer, there's the reaction to God's word in meditation in verses 5 to 7. So I say two introductions, one citation, and one meditation. We start with the words, the last words of David. By last, I don't think it means he said the following on his deathbed. More likely, it was his last written poetry, and it's a lot shorter than the one, uh, the psalm in the uh, previous chapter. But it is no less inspired. As David took up an instrument of music, we see in verse 2 that God took him up as an instrument of truth. And what a wonderful truth we have here. These verses are filled with indications of God's grace. 
In fact, most of the details about David from verses 1 to 5 point to God's work in his life. Start with his lowly origins as the youngest son of Jesse. He was keeping sheep for his family when prophet Samuel showed up one day in Bethlehem to look for the second king of Israel. You see that, remember that in 1 Samuel 16. And then he was raised up on high. He was anointed. He's a God-made man, not a self-made man. It was the God of Jacob who made him king over Israel. And because David recognizes that true authority is granted by God's grace, he'd become the sweet psalmist of Israel. I find it interesting that this title in particular is at the pinnacle of David's rise. It's not something like the greatest king of Israel or the most fearsome defender of Israel. No, it's the sweet psalmist of Israel. At his best, David's all about worship, not kingship. At the core of his being, he loved to praise the Lord. The king of Israel finds his worth in the God of Israel, his stability in the rock of Israel. So we finally get past the introductions, the narrator introducing David, and then David introducing the Lord. And here's what David heard from him. It's worth repeating the quote. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth, by clear shining after rain. I think this is worth memorizing. When a leader rules Fairly and reveres God, he reflects God's goodness. Far from dark and gloomy, the life of his subjects is bright and cheery. Biblical authority does not feel like harsh whips and scourges on your back. It's more like a cool, tender grass under your bare feet. People thrive, not languish, under godly rule. And this is why, it's just a quick application that we must pray, intercede, and be grateful for kings and all who are in authority, as 1 Timothy 2 tells us. Next, we have David's response to the word in verses 5 to 7. I prefer the way the New American Bible, uh, Standard Bible, renders verse 5. In that version, the NASB, I'll call it, it says, Is my house not indeed so with God? For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, properly ordered in all things and secured, for will he not indeed make all my salvation and all my delight grow? David saying he can only fulfill God's demands because of God's hand. David's house and dynasty will only last because the Lord made an everlasting promise with him. You can read about that covenant, the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's salvation and delight will only grow upon the firm foundation of God. True authorities granted by God's grace. 
And as the Lord prospers good rulers, he'll ruin wicked men. And take a look at the image of the sons of rebellion in verse 6. It's literally in sharp contrast to tender grass. It's that of useless and harmful thorns. And as it says in verse 7, they must be removed with care using proper tools of warfare. There's no use for them except to be discarded into fire. A just ruler, ruling in the fear of God, cannot tolerate sin. As Proverbs 20, verse 8 says, a king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. So we have here a simple yet profound picture of true authority. But David's kingdom is just a sample of a greater kingdom to come. There will be a reign established by the one greater than him, yet from his own line. According to that everlasting covenant, David imperfectly foreshadows Jesus, the perfect, sinless God-man. And if you think David shines as a king, let me tell you, Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer. The Bible tells us he's the son of righteousness. He rises with healing in his wings to those who fear God's name. He's a dayspring from on high who visits Israel. He gives light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide their feet into the way of peace. That's not enough. He is to be a light to the Gentiles, the Lord's salvation to the ends of the earth. As believers, we look forward to that day in New Jerusalem where the Lamb is its light and the nations of those saved will walk in its brightness. It is through Christ Jesus that brighter days are ahead because he's the light of the world. So what happened when God's perfect son became flesh and appeared 2,000 years ago? Well, Apostle John tells us, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This is the way we are as fallen, sinful human beings. We are darkness. We love darkness. We like to skulk in the shadows, stay out of sight. We cherish and enjoy secret sins. Sure, we may not have murdered or committed adultery, but there's hatred and lust in our hearts. We've broken God's law in our thoughts, motives, and words. In some, we are the sons of rebellion. Like the thorns that must be thrust away, we are like the earth that bears them to be rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. What hope is there for us? What will quench the Lord's wrath? The fire of hell that burns against us. How do we ask the King of Kings for conditions of peace? 
The good news, the gospel, is about how the commander of the army of the Lord took the place of rebels. It's about how the light of the world was by darkness slain. Jesus willingly and sacrificially went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He paid it in full with his own life. He died and rose again on the third day. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by many during 40 days. Then he ascended to heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father, proved himself to be truly the Son of David and the Lord of David. Someday he'll return as faithful and true, and in righteousness he'll judge and make war. But before it's too late, before you breathe your last, before he returns, surrender, repent. Turn from sin and self-righteousness. Humble yourself and you'll be exalted. Trust in the person and work of Jesus. He's the mediator of a new covenant. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. You cannot earn or deserve heaven and have eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So until the Lord takes us home or he returns as believers, you can live under Christ's true authority, walk in the light as children of light. And that requires working with others who made the same profession of faith and committed to the same kingdom work of spiritual warfare. And I think the rest of 2 Samuel 23 has something to say about that, and I'll read, or I'll try to read, verses 8 to 39. All right. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had, Joshua Bashabeth, the Tecmonite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he killed 800 men at one time, and after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold. And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. 
Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of the three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with the staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did, and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. <clears throat> As Sahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah the Herodite, Elika the Herodite, Helaz the Peltite, Ira the son of Ikesh the Tekoite, Abiezer the Anatotite, Mebunai the Hushatite, Zalman the Ahohite, Maharai the Nedophatite, Heleb the son of Baana the Nedophatite, Ittai the son of Ribai from Gibeah of the children of Benjamin, Benaiah a Perotonite, Hidai from the brooks of Gaash, Abi Albon the Arbatite, Asmaveth the Bahumite, Eliabah, the Sha'al Bonite, of the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Shammah, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Elivelet, the son of Ahasbai, the son of the Maachatite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezrai, the Carmelite, Paarai, the Arbite, Igai, Igal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, the Gedite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Biratite, Armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Garab the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite. 37 in all. I'm going to need a break here. <laughs> yes, even in passages like this one, I think you can learn a valuable lesson. I think we can learn that kingdom authority is exercised best together. Kingdom authority is exercised best together. Now, before I elaborate on that, let me point out some markers to help us manage this bewildering list into three parts. It might help to picture three concentric circles. The three mighty men at the top rank belong in the innermost circle. You have their names and exploits recorded in verses 8 to 17. I call this the loyalty circle. Next, there's the second middle circle. There are two notable individuals described in verses 18 to 23, Abishai and Benaiah. And note the repetition in verses 19 and 23. He did not attain to the first three. So I call this the security circle. And then finally, the third outermost circles from verses 24 to 39. There's a long list of 32 names. I call this diversity circle. Altogether, we have 37 names total. And I'm not going to go through those again, but we'll highlight a few. And so let's start with the innermost circle of three, the loyalty circle. And Joshab Bashabet seems to be from a noble family. 
according to First Chronicles 27, 32. And his nickname, Adino the Esnite, probably alludes to his ability with his preferred weapon, the spear. He used it to cut down hundreds of men at one time. Next, there's Eleazar. What's unique about him is the fact that he's a Benjaminite, fiercely loyal to David. He's skilled in the sword. He's a swordman the Lord used to defeat the Philistines. The Lord used the third guy, Shammah, similarly when he defended a field of lentils against the raiding Philistines. Shammah's family is probably from the hills of Judah. As great as they were individually, it's what they accomplished together. That's even more impressive. At one point, the Philistines had invaded deep into the Israelite territory to plunder grain. The Valley of Rephaim is a fertile area, only about uh, three to four miles southwest of Jerusalem. David was in the cave of Adullam, many miles away. Now, it was during this dangerous time that David got nostalgic. I think he was venting, longing for normalcy and peace when he said what he said in verse 15. It's like if someone from Elkridge grew up, left town, and says to his friends, Oh, what I would do for a cone of ice cream from Cindy's Soft Serve, which is by Green Valley Marketplace at Route 1. You know, the analogy isn't perfect, but you get the idea. It's something that's very specific in the memories of David, right, from his hometown. Anyways, the three men travel 15 miles, break through the enemy camp, locate the specific well, drew the water, brought it back to David. If that isn't loyalty, I don't know what is. And David could not in good conscience drink this water. He's humble enough to recognize that he's not worthy of such sacrifice. Only God, and it's to him that is offered as libation. After the first three, we have the two who did not attain to the first three, they say. So they form, I call it the security circle. Their names should be familiar to us. We saw Abishai, David's nephew and Joab's brother, throughout the narratives. We first saw him back in 1 Samuel 26 as he followed David down into the camp of Saul, basically to watch his back. Um, He's a fearsome fighter who rose in ranks and led another trio. As for Benaiah, he has up something like the Israel's version of the Praetorian Guard, the king's personal bodyguards. Uh, they formed, uh, they're formed out of two groups of foreign men, the Keratites and Pelatites. I'm guessing they're related to the coast of Philistines and from the island of Crete. But the focus here is on Benaiah's upbringing and skill. His father was a mighty man one of the, from one of the southernmost towns in Judah near the boundaries of Edom. Benaiah, however, certainly didn't live under his father's shadow. He defeated the formidable heroes of Moab. He slew a lion on a snowy day. That's pretty impressive. He faced an Egyptian fighter with a staff, killing him eventually with his own spear. First Chronicles 11 tells us that this Egyptian was seven feet six inches tall. So I just got to ask, like, where does David... How does he find these kind of men, you know, like just 
He's definitely got eye for talent. With such capable warriors in his army, you can see why kingdom authorities exercised best together. Finally, beyond the loyalty and security circles, we have the last group in verses 24 to 39. I call this the diversity circle for two reasons. First, it's diverse geographically. Included in it are men from very different backgrounds. I mean, as you expect, you expect uh, the men of Judah to be in there. But Abiazar and Ittai are from Benjaminite territory. In fact, Ittai is from the hometown of the previous king, Saul. I think that's remarkable. Verse 30 includes two from Ephraim and beyond the borders of Israel. They're foreigners joining David's cause and rising in ranks. Some even come from enemy countries. We already know Uriah is a Hittite, as you know, and Maaka, Amun, and Zobah at one point combined forces against Israel. Yet there are individuals who are loyal to David now. Secondly, the circle is diverse chronologically speaking because the roster does seem to change over time. And if you look at the first name and the last name on the list, um, you can see that Asahel is the man who was fleet of foot as wild gazelle, a brother of Joab and Abishai, died in battle back in 2 Samuel 2. And of course, it was the hand of David that sent Uriah to his death in 2 Samuel 11. So once they died, others took their place so that the number would remain at 30. And if that's the case, that both the predecessors and the successors are listed. Or it could just be that the number 30 is an approximate number. Whatever the case. What's clear is that with such men of loyalty, security, and diversity, kingdom authorities exercise best together. And there's a lesson for us as a church today. I'm glad that God didn't call us to be lone rangers and solo acts. Under the headship of Christ, we must work together. Here's some passages that will get us going. Romans 12, 3 to 6. For I say through the grace given to me that to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Whereas we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6 tells us there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. One more, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. I've left out the list of spiritual gifts, but that's something you should prayerfully figure out soon, if you haven't already. What are the gifts God has granted you for others' edification 
and God's glory. Once you identify them, how will you use them? I encourage you to talk with the leaders of our church. Me, the elders, the deacons, the Sunday school teachers, other ministry leaders. Get involved, be active. Let's stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So we can recognize that true authorities granted by God's grace and will exercise kingdom authority together. So we're going to close with the song In Christ Alone and just sort of as a devotional exercise, I want to shift ever so slightly the lyrics of the final song, a final verse. I'm not saying you have to sing that, but just consider, just listen to the way I kind of shifted here to consider how we, more than conquerors, can unite as one. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Till he returns or calls us home, here in the power of Christ we'll stand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've transformed our hearts. Lord, you've given us hope. And you helped us realize that life under the rule of man, sinful fallen man, life of freedom without authority, living for our own good without any submission to you, Lord, is foolish, and you are a good, benevolent, loving God. And it is to you we come willingly to honor you, We thank you that you have shown your light upon us. And Lord, as we think about who you are, who your son is, Lord, especially at this season of the year, help us to be joyful, to rejoice, to walk in the light, and to work together to have fellowship, um, not only enjoy the fellowship we have with you, but with one another, proclaim the truth so that others can join us. And we thank you and help us to unite uh, for your glory. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost his grip on me, for I am his and he is mine. Brought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This 
possess the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Let's pray. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Please be seated. Please take time to meditate and contemplate until the music begins.